0: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo, and before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candice Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, author of Hoodoo Cleansing Protection Magic, Damian Keller, binaural production engineer, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host jared murphy author of it's not aliens it's worse it's us if you are interested in becoming a contributor to the show go to my website everythingimaginable 2020.com and you'll find everything you need there and now without further ado our guest for today is dr david morehouse he's the author of psychic warrior and he was in the military part of stargate and cia and it is an honor to have you here today
1: thanks gary just call me dave
0: thank please. you <laughs> so dave let's start from the beginning
1: yeah uh like the beginning of my career or the beginning of becoming a remote viewer both <clears throat> okay uh, i'll be, try to be fast um i was a third generation army officer i was uh, uh, commissioned out of Brigham Young University as uh, the top cadet commissioned into the regular Army for that year group. Uh, I was the Ralph D. Mershon Award winner, as well as a distinguished military graduate and all of those things, which measures your uh, your academic uh, record as well as your military skills and performance record in your advanced camp and et cetera. But I went to ranger school and jump school uh, during that summer of 78. Um, <clears throat> my first position was as uh, an infantry mortar platoon leader uh, in uh, Bravo Company, 3rd Battalion, 5th Infantry in Panama at Fort Kobe. My first company commander was James J. Pelosi, who was the, uh, uh, the cadet who was silenced at West Point for cheating, allegedly cheating on an exam. And there's a movie called Silence, a book called Silence, his whole story. He was a, an interesting guy. Uh, I, I can't say that, you know, he empowered me with great knowledge about command, but right. he was an interesting guy to talk to and to understand his resilience, uh, in, in fighting against, uh, you know, what happened, uh, to him from there. Uh, I went to alpha company, uh, third battalion, fifth infantry, which alpha company was an airborne company. I went there as an airborne rifle platoon leader, and I served in that capacity for about a year and was then pulled up. Uh, and asked to be a general's aide to General Kenneth C. Lure. Uh, General Lure was the officer that had been given the Creighton Abrams Charter in 1974 as a lieutenant colonel to reform First Ranger Battalion, which was the first one, the first time that that had been done since uh, since Korea or World War World War II. Uh, I was really honored to to be there with him because it that was the place where I learned to become a trainer mm-hmm. and where I really learned to become a commander. Uh, and I can't say that I did as a, a young lieutenant and I certainly can't say that I did that as a young lieutenant in the uh, in, in infantry officer's basic course or anything like that. And the company commanders that I found myself with uh, were, they weren't good trainers and they weren't, they weren't good you know, in theory or tactics or anything else, even though I'm, I'm sure they felt that they were uh but i didn't learn a lot from them but i was a total sponge with general lure i was his aide for two years uh and then i left i was going to go back to the airborne company to be uh an executive officer second in command of it Uh, that company always only had senior captains commanding it because it was the sink south the four-star general uh of, of southern command there it used to be at quarry heights in panama it was the Sink South Ready Reaction Force. That's how it was looked at. So it was kind of kept on the same sort of war footing as the Rangers, certainly maybe not as severe as the Rangers, but it certainly could be, uh, but certainly uh, as, as secure or as rapid a war footing as the 82nd Airborne Division. So, and it was the Army's only separate airborne rifle company. I was then uh, pulled out of that uh, XO position to be an aide to general Warner who became the sink South, the four star down there. And so I was his aide for about 18 months. And I did so with the promise that, uh, when I got done with that and, uh, when he was finished with me, that I would go to the airborne company and command it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I did, and I was given that command and it was, uh, it was, I was just a first lieutenant. So the first time, That had ever been commanded by a first lieutenant, I barely outranked the young officers uh, under my command. So that was probably at that point one of the greatest things that I had ever been able to do. I was able to take everything I had learned from guys like Wes Taylor, George Utter, Emery Mace, uh, uh, you know, Kenneth Lure, Joe Stringham, just amazing officers and amazing trainers, and all of them had worked in some capacity under Lure throughout their careers, and now they were battalion commanders or they were the, the, the G3, or they were something else under Lure. Uh, but Lure was now gone. He was off to be the deputy commandant of the infantry school. <clears throat> and I was now commanding this company, which I commanded for two years, nearly two years. And when I gave that up, I was brought to 1st Ranger Battalion in Savannah, Georgia, Uh, Where I first came in, it was a deputy S3, and then was later turned into the S1 because 41, was, you know, personal management was my secondary specialty at that time. And I was was given the S1 job for a year. Uh, Colonel Taylor wanted to put me into a company, but it would have caused me to jump over a peer who had already been there for a a while. And uh, that was probably just not a good thing to do. Uh, and so I agreed to take his job as the S-1 while well, that guy took a command. Uh, he took Charlie Company. And then I waited for Bravo Company. Uh, and when I got Bravo Company, now I was truly at the what I think was the zenith of my career. Because you're dealing with uh, the youngest, smartest, most capable young men and non-commissioned officers and even young officers uh, that anyone can imagine. I mean, they're just smart. And, and really capable and good at doing what they do. But yet there was a lot of training to do. So uh, I started my training program based on how I knew it needed to be done. Uh, it was completely different than what they had been exposed to in the past, but it was a perfect mirror of the training that I was taught under General Lure uh, to produce. And it demonstrated a lot of <clears throat> lack of proficiency in certain areas for these young rangers. Uh, that they were happy to, you know, pick up those skills and learn what they needed to learn, doing what we were doing in terms of live fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, we shot millions of rounds a year. Uh, we did combat. I mean, we did, uh, you know, movement to contact. We did, <laughs> we did everything from squad and fire team squad on up to company deliberate attacks with close air support, eight inch, you know, four point two inch mortars, <laughs> sixty millimeter mortars anything we could get our hands on to make it real. And we would attack the objectives with closer support and indirect fire and then assault across the objectives or providing support, supporting fire. And we were extremely realistic in what we were doing and we were ready to go do it for real uh, if that call came. Um, I was called by Gen- Colonel Joe Stringham, the, who was at that time, the uh, after Lane Downing left, Joe Stringham became... Uh, the regimental commander, Ranger Regimental Commander, and I was deemed uh, the finest trainer in the Ranger Regiment, which to this day I'm honored by that title, right? So, uh, although it's funny, my son is a command sergeant major now, fourth generation uh, serving the nation in in uniform, and he actually worked as a military, he's a military police officer uh, and he, as a command sergeant major, worked with uh the ranger regiment in in uh afghanistan in his last deployment and the command sergeant major of the ranger regiment used to be at e4 actually a pfc under me when i commanded bravo company and he was of course telling my son all sorts of stories and i uh i emailed him and said don't tell him anything bad. You know, just tell him good stuff, (laughs) you know? So he told my son, he goes, yeah, we used to accuse your dad of like trading ranger school slots for, for ammo. (laughs) So instead of getting us to go, sending us to ranger school, he trade them, trade the slots for some, you know, for piles of ammo from other company commanders, which I didn't do, but you know, that was the rumor that they, that they adhered to. Uh, and so, and we, the company, was chosen to go to uh, because of its capabilities and just the readiness that it it, it displayed. Out of the three uh, Ranger battalions that were possible, uh, <clears throat> First Battalion and Bravo Company out of First Battalion was selected to go to the Kingdom of Jordan to be the first Ranger company to go into the Kingdom of Jordan to train Jordanian Rangers to people hate it when I say this, but there were two possible enemies for them. One, Syria, Mm -hmm. was threatening to them, and the other was, of course, Israel. So they were orienting everything in their head was in those two different places, Uh, but we set everything up to train them as we trained ourselves, and during one of those training exercises, uh, a Jordanian machine gunner, uh, instead of, there were four Jordanian machine guns attached to our 12 gun position uh, that was hosing down this 10 bunker objective. And there was a shift fire signal, which is not lift fires, but shift the fires off of the number one bunker so that it can be hit by the assault element. And then they just keep putting out smoke signals and radio calls, ops kids, to move, walk the fires off of the next bumper and the next bunker and the next bunker. Until tell you you're able to kill everything or keep everybody's heads down in all the bunkers while you keep killing each subsequent bunker. That's the, the tactic anyway. And then the process of doing that, we had already blown Bangalore torpedoes to blow the wire and it created a breach and the assault element was ready to go through. And there was a young Lieutenant Owens was his name, used to be my mortar platoon leader and was now a now one of my rifle platoon leaders. And I can remember in that moment, looking at the back of his hand and just watching him depress the handset as he was calling in uh, the ops kid to to shift the fire. And there had already been yellow smoke thrown out, which was the visual signal. And as he was doing this, um, I just, one minute I was looking at the back of his hand and in the next minute uh, I was in some other place. Uh, And what had happened is I, I was hit in the helmet, uh, not in the head, but in the helmet, uh, with a direct direct shot by a 7.62 M60 machine gun round, uh, traveling roughly 2,800 plus feet per second. And it it just knocked me unconscious. I mean, it hit me and snapped my head back, and uh, it wasn't a ricochet, so it didn't hit the ground and lose some energy. It just hit me flat, square in the helmet, and it didn't ricochet off the helmet, it was caught by the Kevlar cause it was coming straight mm-hmm. in or at enough of an angle, I guess, that it could be caught through the layers of the Kevlar. Um, during that incident, I had what I guess could best be described as like an out of body experience. <clears throat> now I had no reference for that and I certainly had no language for it and I had no way of understanding what it was or how it was or how to process it. Um, we were in this bizarre place called uh, Bartel Gul, or the, the belly of the beast. Uh, it was supposed to be a haunted valley, according to the uh, Jordanian battalion commander uh, who was on the ground there. And it was a place where the Hajj Road, uh, the road to Mecca, and also the same narrow gauge railroad that Lawrence of Arabia uh, used to blow up. There's a 42 pound piece of it sitting right over there, eight feet away because uh, we blew it up as well. And I carried that one back because it landed right <laughs> behind me. <laughs> and the helmet is right up there. So uh, when I was hit, of course, we had our battalion surgeon there, Dr. Paft, as I recall. And they inspected. I had a hematoma, and, you know, asked me how I felt because you play that kind of stuff off as a young man, especially as a Ranger commander, because you understand that if you... If you whine or wimp about it uh they'll put you on a plane and send you back you know with a medic and bring in the next company commander so you don't do those kinds of things you, you keep pushing and doing whatever you have to do because you want to stay there and stay in command uh, which i did so i didn't have any other episodes immediately following but about Eight or nine days later, we were in Petra, and I was kind of wandering off by myself, and I went up to this place called the High Place in Petra, and in the High Place in Petra, all my rangers were, like 259 of them, because I had another platoon attached, 269 of them, and they were just wandering in desert camos all over Petra uh, in soft caps. It was, I don't think you ever, it will ever, Petra will ever see that again, you know? (laughs) ever but there they were and i just kind of wandered off by myself up to this place called the high place and i sat down there and my head still smarted a little bit and it took it was hard to wear a cap and uh but i just leaned back against this obelisk that's there and i fell asleep or i had an out-of-body experience again but I definitely felt as though I was not in my physical body at that time. So again, very unusual thing and, and not something that I ran up to the surgeon and said, you won't believe what just happened. Uh, I just kept my own counsel with something like that. And so it came time for me to give my company up several months later. And these episodes kind of kept coming and kept coming. And they were always just, you know, it, as I was almost asleep or when I felt like I was about to wake up, and they would happen, and they were inexplicable to me, and they were very odd, and not within my my experience Rolodex at all, so I was concerned by it. <clears throat> I was selected to go to uh, the activity, uh, at that time codenamed Royal Cape. As I told you, there's a book called Killer Elite. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was my first special access program. Uh, I had to come in, I had a top secret uh, secret compartmented information uh, background at that or background check. And that was my clearance to be there. I was the token ranger that was there. The rest of them were like Marines or uh, there were some army aviation guys. There were other folks that were there, special forces, meaning green beret. Uh, but I was the token special, special operator ranger that was there. My job was to be like called the deputy uh, executive Officer or the Staff Action Control Officer was another one of my titles, which meant I basically ran around keeping track of all of the movements or proposed movements of any of the operatives or operators or anything else in that unit. And I had to brief John O'Marsh Jr. Uh, multiple times a week to say, here's what's being proposed, here's why, etc., etc. There was a whole format of briefing to him and he had to approve those movement orders <clears throat> in this organization there was a lieutenant colonel who was a psychologist not a psychiatrist but a psychologist and he was detailed to this unit to keep his finger on the psychiatric pulse of this organization why because living in a in a you know an organization like that especially if you're one of the operators uh even people in the staff sections were having meltdowns. And I mean like meltdowns of multiple divorces. And I mean, I actually saw a Lieutenant Colonel and a command Sergeant Major getting a fist fight, both married men in a fist fight at a drinking fountain over an E (laughs) four, a female E (laughs) four. It was bizarre to see those kinds of things, but nonetheless, that was what this guy was there for. So you would, uh, you would get polygraphed because there was a CI organization that was there. They, you'd be polygraphed. It was not a full lifestyle poly, but it was a CI poly. Meaning they wanted to know if you had divulged classified information or if you knew anybody it had, et cetera. And then you had a sit down with this guy, which was probably not unlike a therapy session. And in that therapy session, he would ask you questions and you would give generic answers. And he always ended the session by saying, is there anything else you'd like to talk about? Which I thought was creepy the first time I heard it. Uh, The second time I heard it, I just decided to man up and say, yeah, I've been having these things ever since I got zinged in the head uh, in in the kingdom of Jordan. And I don't know what they are or why they're happening to me. Very long story short, over the next series of months, uh, he started. Uh, doing what was called a limited read-on, meaning he would give me files to look at, and he would say, take a look at these and tell me what you think of these, give me your assessment in the morning. Uh, and these files were t- stamped a secret grill flame, uh, or they were, you know, grantor shadow, or they were center lane, or they were Sunstreak, or they were whatever they happened to be. They were old remote viewing files. And the ones that I happened to be particularly looking at were uh, the the ones that really... Per, you know, perked up my interest were the ones that were done in support of the failed Iranian hostage rescue attempt. So we had very limited intel, right, on, on, uh, on the embassy. Right. Uh, many people don't realize it, but we had none of the blueprints on the embassy. They were all in the embassy. So no, nothing was back in, in State Department or anything else. Nobody knew what the floor plan was, meaning they, I mean, they might have known that it was you know, two stories or three stories, but they didn't know, you know where all the stairwells were, where they went, how, which way doors opened, you know, were these windows bulletproof, did they lock, there were all these things, they just had no idea. So there were, there were several primary sources of intelligence that were coming to uh, to Charlie Beckwith and the other planners for that special ops mission. One was remote viewers. Uh, and they were drawing locks and, you know, put, drawing the Farsi um, uh, scribe on them, uh, the scroll that was on them. Uh, they were, you know, showing the, the lock op- you know, the key portal design. They were showing, uh, you know, whether chains were on gates, which way doors open, and these, you know, kind of lo- looking up, looking down, showing gatherings of bodies in this room, gatherings of people in this room gatherings of people in this room i didn't mean bodies people and they were pushing that Mm -hmm. stuff and then the other thing they had was ted koppel who was in the embassy interviewing various members of the revolutionary guard and they were panning the camera you know trying to be you know discreet about it but they were trying to get shots down the down the hallways to see you know, if they could catch a glimpse of something over the shoulder of the student that they were, or the revolutionary guard they were interviewing. So you had that and that, and then there was some signal intelligence. There were some limited human, you know, human intelligence, but it was all being put together trying to develop a plan, which would have been a plan that was far outside anything that the U S had ever done at that particular point. And the technology just didn't exist to make it happen the way it needed to happen. I mean, There's a reason why the, you know, the old duct tape uh, is called hundred mile an hour tape in, in the military. Do you know why that is? It's because they had no infrared landing lights on the C one thirties. So they took infrared film and they put infrared film over the plexiglass on the leading edge of the C one thirties. And they taped it on there with duct tape and it got the name hundred mile an hour tape because it was the only tape that would hold the film over the landing lights uh, for the duration of the flight. That's where that that term came from. Uh, so the, they planned, they trained, they tested, they rehearsed, and the back and forth. But then as we all know, it, it failed. Right. Um, I was then one day brought to, uh, because it was very clear to this psychologist that I had an interest in this, that I was willing to explore anything in order to come to an understanding of what this was. So I was then brought to uh, Fort Meade, Maryland, and came down this, made a turn right past the hospital and over this bridge that German prisoners of war built uh, during World War II. And I was brought then simply to uh, this ramshackle building. I mean, he's single war, there were single story, World War II barracks looking buildings. Same kind of barracks that we lived in in ranger school, if you really wanna know the truth. This actually was, a, was an old World War II baker's school. Uh, hence, it had like this weird four by four tile all over the place in different spots, because that would have been where the kitchen and other things were in the baker's school. But <laughs> we walked up to this thing with paint peeling, you know, the, the 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 roof line was an old glass asphalt. It looked like, you know, how baloney looks when it gets mm-hmm. fried. So everything on it was all cupped up. And it was just the whole thing was just, it really looked horrible. And, you know, I had come out of this place where I was working inside of a secret compartment and information facility, you know, it was, it was a pretty cool place. Now you come here and you're looking at this like, holy cow, man, this is the best they could do. I guess they just, <laughs> Didn't want to do it, put, you know, put them anyplace place noticeable. So you go, they open up this big, he knocks on this huge green metal door. That's got a combo lock on it and the door opens. And it's this little rotund woman by the name of Jeannie, who is uh, her husband's a Colonel and she happens to be the, re- the recorder, the transcriber, the phone answerer, and the secretary for, for the program manager all rolled into one. And she opens the door, and, and uh, she knows him by name, but doesn't know me. But brings me in. First thing I notice when I walk in is that <laughs> across this, the building's about 25 feet wide, and right across, they called it the lobby, but it just had a couple of old military furnitures sitting there. But the wall had a had a big giant mural painted on it. And it was a galaxy, with red gaseous clouds. And I thought, my God, that's not something you see every day in a military organization. I mean, usually it's like tanks or artillery pieces or Rangers in action or something else. And now you're looking at this going, well, that's strange, a little strange. And so I'm then taken back to meet this cast of characters while the doctor peels off to go in to speak to Fern Gavin, the GS-15, who is the program manager of the organization. And I meet Angela and Robin and I meet Mel Uh, You know, Mel Riley is a smoker, so, uh, which I always said would kill him, and it did. Uh, He is, uh, you know, in this part of the building where the smoke was like from the ceiling, I swear, down to about the five-foot level, so you had to kind of duck under it to not stick your face in it and travel through it. Mm -hmm. Sitting at a desk smoking, so is Angela and Robin, and Angela and Robin are playing with Tarot cards. They have black cloths draped over their desks, and they're flipping tarot cards down. And I'm like, "Well, that's not something you see every day <laughs> either." <laughs> and I look at Mel Riley, and behind him is a lance and a tomahawk and a, a, a drum, dream drum. And you know, he's he has this huge piece of of deer skin in front of him, and he has this vast like chest of different colored beads, and he is beading a, an intricate you know Native American pattern onto this thing. And uh, he just has these old grandfatherly eyes and white hair like me. Uh, but I, again, strange to just see that and to kind of take that all in. Then I go meet the rest of the crew, uh, which at that time was Paul, Gabby, and uh, Lynn. And that was it. Oh, and Ed Dames. And so then uh, I'm brought in to sit down with Fern Gavin. Uh, And Fern Gavin says to me as I walk into the room and I'm introduced to him, he goes, I'm always impressed that there are young officers who are willing to give everything up to come and be part of this unit. Now, nobody had said anything to me in a bad way about the unit up to this particular point in time, because this was not being relayed to Commander Lackey, Colonel Lackey, who was the commander of the activity, or, or Colonel Bob Glass, who was the other the, the deputy commander, both O6s, uh, nobody had said anything to them, not even to uh, Lieutenant Colonel Lurie, who was the guy w- who was my my direct supervisor as the deputy executive officer. I assumed, I guess, that, that this Lieutenant Colonel was talking to them about it, but he wasn't. And so I find myself listening to this guy Fern say, give everything up to become to come here. And I said, I I I don't know what you what you mean by that. And I don't even really know what you do here. I've just been shown files and kind of given sketchy information that he didn't read me on fully onto this program. And Fern Gavin just looks at me and he says, Well what we do here, young man, is we train individuals to transcend space and time, to view persons, places or things remote in space and time and to gather and collect and report intelligence information on the same. Well, now that's not something you hear every day as, <laughs> as an Army officer, right? No. I mean, I did not come from that bolt of cloth. I was not, I didn't know what to say to that. I, I, was I intrigued? Of course I was. Wouldn't you have been? I mean, I was really intrigued and curious about it, but convinced that it was real or convinced that I had a role to play in it or anything like that, that was, that was all still way up in the air. So after that conversation, back in this little Chrysler K car and heading back to, to the activity. And when I get back to the activity, well, within an hour of me getting there, uh, they sure as hell found out that I had been there with, with this, uh, psychi- psychologist. And yeah, they were hot. They were really pissed off, and so I got called in in front of both of these colonels, who told me that this was nothing but an organization of misfits and freaks and ne'er do wells, and that if I went there, that I would never recover from it, and that you know it just it had a, it would put a stain on me that I would never rid myself of, et cetera, et cetera. And I almost said, "Okay, I'll stay," but then I just said, "There is something." that's happened to me that I haven't told you about, but I did tell the psychologist about and he knows it. And he believes that this place can help sort that out for me. And I, I need to go do this. I know you don't want me to, and I understand and appreciate your concern, but I think I need to go do this. I mean, I'm not going to do this forever. I just want to go there and learn what I can learn and see if that helps sort some things out and then you know, I can always come back here after a year or two or three there, right? And, and their response was, if you leave, you're not coming back. So, okay. Uh, I left. And that was probably the first time I had ever, you know, disagreed with a senior officer about doing something like that and not heeding their warning. But there I went. So I then started my training to become uh, a remote viewer. Wow. Sorry, that was a long No, break. that was awesome. I love that.
0: Wow. So so then then where did it go from there? When once you you, you left your other command and went into the remote viewing program, like how did he start
1: training you? Well <clears throat> I will say this that you know as as a trainer and as a A PhD educator and as a, you know, uh, a guy with a master's degree and actually two master's degrees, uh, that I expected a a lot more than what was presented there. So I first thing I asked for was, is there a, is there a program of instruction? No. No. Uh, is there an outline, a training outline? No. Is there a manual? No. And I'm thinking, okay. Uh, and so they said, okay, but but what you've got to do now is we're going to take you over here and there's a historical file and they open it up and it's a big, one of these big file safes, right? That's like 18 inches wide and it's 32 inches deep and it's four drawers high. And they say, pulled out the top drawer, pulled up the first file, which was Gabrielle Pettingale was my trainer and she goes you read this and when you pull up the last file at the bottom drawer then we'll start your formal training oh, god you know so it's like you're reading <laughs> everything that there is to read about this the history of this unit and where it where it came from and all the other things that are out there in like competing national projects that are similar to what you're getting ready to be involved in Now, one thing I will tell you is that nobody else called theirs remote viewing, and there was a reason for that. They all had some other title for it, which is anytime I hear somebody go, well, I was a a German remote viewer, I'm always like, really? Because Germany didn't call it remote viewing, so why are you calling it remote viewing? Why don't you just call it, you know, in the tunnel of time, or whatever else they called it there, but don't say it's remote viewing just because remote viewing is a popular catch all term right now. Uh, and I have the same thing from, you know, Russian guys will come mm-hmm. up I'm a part of the Russian remote viewing program. Well, no, you weren't cause Russian didn't have a remote viewing program. They called it something else. <laughs> so call it what it was and, you know, say it was similar to the remote viewing program, but stop, you know, riding on the coattails of remote viewing. Remote viewing is a specific, It is a specific protocol. It was not, the protocol was not developed at SRI as many people project that it was. It was not. What SRI did was answer three specific questions which were part of a sole source contract let by Robert Gottlieb, the same guy that ran MKUltra, that was let, they, Robert Gottlieb was responsible for pulling this project together. He went to, uh, and threw out to SEIC and other labs and said, "Here's a request for proposals." Now, being a government contractor myself, now I, I understand that language. It said we are interested in exploring these things, and of course, this would have been done on a classified level, which that happens. Mm-hmm. They, I've done that for classified pro for classified contracts as well. So. They would do that, and then they looked at the different proposals that came back, they made a determination, and they sole-source contracted it to SRI. Now, I don't know why they did that, but they did. So SRI gets this contract, (coughs) and they have three basic questions to answer. We need you to validate scientifically and tell us whether or not this phenomenon, meaning just anything to do with human psychogenics, okay, is real or not, or is it just all make-believe and bullshit? So what is it? Is it real? Can you validate it? And we want you to tell us who will be good at this and who will not be good at this so that we can decide whether or not, you know, how we're going to screen for personnel to put into this program, assuming you tell us that it's a program Worth pursuing because you validated it, and then third was can you replicate it, which means do you have can you pull together a training protocol to do this? Yeah. <laughs> so question number one is answered within a couple of years, with it, it and, and it's answered in the affirmative. Yes, we have validated this, but as I explained to you, because the, the CIA is superb at always keeping somebody. Between them and the problem, and always make anticipating bad news or how or where they might be looking bad about something. They anticipated at the start that there could be individuals if were this ever exposed, or did somebody find out about it that people would criticize them for getting involved in, you, know, voodoo and black magic and stuff like that. So they hired independent labs. To come in and audit the work being done by uh, SAIC and SAI i mean SAIC—but SRI as the contract prime, and then there SAIC was doing some parallel work uh, for them, and I actually don't even know if that was if that was under contract. I'm sure it probably was, but they were they were auditing this. To explain to the CIA that, right, there's no in, investigative bias, their methodology is sound, they're doing everything in randomized tests, uh, controls, et cetera, et cetera, following scientific protocol, because that now removes it from all the skeptics being able to come in and say, oh bull, uh-huh. you know, they didn't do it right, there was investigator bias, there was this and there was that. Well, you may say that, but you're saying that because you're biased, and not because, you know, an independent auditing agency who came in and looked at it said that it wasn't biased. And the guys that were doing the work and the other labs that were doing the work were all paralleling in their experiments. And, and there was not corroboration, but there was there were parallel trends in what they developed and what they learned, that this was, in fact, a human ability. Now, who were they testing? They were testing all the greatest natural gifted psychics that they could get their hands on. Guys like Ingo Swan, Yuri Geller, uh, you know, you name it. They also went after guys that were like big motivational speaker guys and other things. Go figure. So even guys like Tony Robbins, you know, were were interviewed, if not tested, in that at SRI. And so it was all pulled together, and they answered that first question. Thumbs up. Yes, it is a real human ability, and we verified that it's there. It's not make believe. There are people that are, you know, are not as good as everybody else, but we think that you can make everybody as good as everybody else. Just depends. And question number two is uh, who will be good at this? Now, I'll have to say that this was probably one of the things that I most appreciated from Targ put off at, at all, which was basically to say, well, we believe this is an inherent ability in every human being. So you don't have to have, get shot in the head. You don't have to have a heart attack. You don't have to have anything that everybody's got this ability. But some are curious about it and would be interested in developing and then others want to sit back and say from some atheistic skeptical perspective go there's nothing beyond the physical. Don't waste my time. Don't even ask me about it. If their position was if that's the per- if that's a person that you're considering, don't consider them anymore. Only consider people who are willing to come forward and experiment. And see what is possible for them or for the process. The third question is always a big point of contention uh, within this community because you know and put well Targ especially will tell you that oh we we had that all put together we were gonna we were doing a you know our, our our protocols well actually you didn't what you were doing was like monitored sessions with Pat Price and other stuff like that and that's really not a training protocol at all but targ being obstinate about that he's gone out now and hung out a shingle like trying to present himself as a remote viewer and i'll teach you how to remote view. that just it's just so preposterous to me it's like you know it's like saying because you kept your volkswagen running in in college you now should go work for ferrari you know on the formula one team it's just preposterous he didn't have the first clue about what the training protocol protocol was now, how do I know that? Because I wasn't there then. But when I left the army, I lived two years in New York, and and when I was in New York City, <clears throat> I had mutual friends that were with Ingo Swann, and Ingo Swann and I used to do remote viewing sessions with Ingo Swann. I used to talk to Ingo Swann about remote viewing. I used to talk to him about the time at SRI, and I used to talk to him about what is you know what went well, what didn't go well, etc. Why? Because I'm always. Trying to calculate the training protocol and process for this. Ingo told me that he routinely wanted to take a hammer to Russell Targ. Now, that was just a figure of speech. He didn't really mean that, but it, that was Ingo. But it was like, I wanted to take a hammer to him because he, you know, he didn't get it that it had to be this staged process. It had to be this protocol driven process. It couldn't be this free flow, whatever comes to you as I ask you a kind of question thing. You know, like, it's not like, well, what do you think is in my pocket now? You know, or what, how, what do you think my room looks like at home? Kind of stuff, it, which was sorta kinda how Targ was seeing it, that it should be that free flow. But Ingo was, no, it has to have this, actually it started with a seven stage process. Uh, the seventh stage, which was phonetics, which was to try to phonetically pronounce the name of a street or a person or country or something else, and it was uh, undoable, let's say that. So it was removed from the structure, uh, even though Ingo had originally put it in there. And that's, that process, that six-stage process, stage one, two, three, four, five, and six, had a defined protocol, uh, you had to learn the lexicon. You had to learn the cadence with which you move through that protocol. And as I said, just not to be repetitive, it had a dedicated lexicon that supported it. You had to learn what AOL signal was, like aesthetic data into, you know, intangible data and AOL, AOL drive, AOL ratcheting, you know, all of these different things that you had to learn, uh, which were, it was the creation of Ingo Swan. He was truly the father of coordinate remote viewing not controlled remote viewing it was coordinate remote viewing so <clears throat> even the name remote viewing came from ingo swan because targ and put off at all all the other scientists were calling it remote sensory perception in fact in march of 1976 in the ieee an engineering professional publication there is an article in there called Remote Sensory Perception, March 1976. In that article, they actually talk about their findings, not saying they did just published for findings saying, here's what we have determined capable for human beings in the area of remote sensory perception. So Ingo Swan is the one that came in and said, nope, it's going to be remote viewing, not remote sensory perception, remote viewing. And so that term then is what was attached to the protocol that was sometime around 78 or 1979, it was handed into the three different military organizations that developed remote viewing programs. One was uh, the Army program, which started off at INSCOM, but then later ended up at the DIA, Directorate of, of Technology and Science, still under the umbrella of CIA, the other was at the Air Force and the other was at the Navy, uh, still under the umbrella of the CIA because still the ongoing research at SRI International, but those three military operational units were now using it as an Intel collector. According to Ingo, although he would never name the agency, he claimed that he taught other groups. So I would assume that you know it would have been uh, it, it would have been some sort of element of you know, operators at CIA. Uh, there could have been elements of special operations units like SEAL Team Six, maybe. Uh, maybe Delta Force might have had some individuals trained in this. I don't know that they would have been operators, but in order to answer that question or even understand the, the logic behind that question, you have to understand where this all began. Because back in, in 73, when it started, this is when the Delta Force concept paper was written. Delta Force concept was not Delta Force meaning Combat Applications Group or Delta Force as we see it. Um, it was an actual think tank that which was working uh, with, with all sorts of, uh, of uh, mil- you know, high-ranking military generals, colonels, et cetera, and high-ranking DOD or DOA civilians, <clears throat> Department of the Army civilians, to help calculate and refigure the design of the new all-volunteer army after the draft ended in, you know, in, in 73 or 74, whatever it was, when it was terminated. So the, there was this whole new design for what, how are we going to make this army, this all-volunteer army, how are we going to have to change that? They, had, they were really quite concerned about their ability to continue to man the force if it was all-voluntary, particularly after Vietnam. It was a big concern, so they were trying to figure out how they were gonna change things. And that is also when you started to see things like from Lieutenant Colonel Jim Channon came up with, among other people, this 1st Earth Battalion, which was, oh yeah, you know, that was a funny, funny book uh, written by a guy who actually didn't write the book, but he claimed he wrote the book. Uh, It was real gonzo, you know, authorship, and then, you know, George Clooney makes a movie called *The Men Who Stare at Goats*, and then, and then the guy that actually wrote the book, because the clown that didn't write the book but whose name's on the book, and you know, now it's a movie, and neither him nor Clooney involved the other guy, so the guy who actually wrote the book, Sue's Clooney and Sue's Sue's the <laughs> other guys whose names on the book, so the movie almost gets canceled because these guys are going at each other at this point. And I was like, beautiful. Absolutely beautiful, because I hated the book. It was a smart-ass approach to it, and I hated the movie. It was funny in parts, I, I admit, but none of it was real. I mean, it was just stupid-ass stuff mm-hmm. that was thrown out there to be funny, uh, and it was over-the-top interpretations of things that Channon was very serious about, as were the Delta Force concept members, very serious about this stuff. How are we going to redesign our army? And it has to be something more than just, you know, sharpening bayonets and, you know, knuckle draggers. We've got to create a a more advanced, you know, uh, well-rounded, you know, maybe even spiritually based military that's going to be in service to the nation and its people. So when you understand where all that stuff came from, you start to understand why these things were, kind of coming together the way they were during this time frame and what places it was being used. So to me to think that Ingo might have trained somebody that you know at CAG or Delta Force or SEAL Team 6 or some other place even special forces would not have been unusual. When I came into First Ranger Battalion one of the first things that I saw in the S3's library was the first training was the first manual The first earth battalion training manual was there now go figure that that would be in first ranger battalion i mean it was all dog-eared and dirty from guys that looked at it over the years it certainly wasn't implemented at that time but it was there nonetheless so it and every time over the years that i've ever talked about uh, remote viewing and that training to sf guys uh, or you know, old, old Rangers, uh, they've all been, yeah, I remember hearing about something like that, that was out there, kind of thing. So <clears throat> after I read all the historical files, I started my training. I had two trainers. So anybody else that ever pipes up on, you know, wherever and goes, oh, I trained Morehouse. No, you didn't. There were only two people that trained me. And it was, the first guy was Ed Dames. Now, Ed Dames, was different there than he is now this dr doom character that's flying around out there Uh, there's a reason why ed dames has become that character i think Um, and it comes from being hurt and and feelings of betrayal and other stuff and there's no excuse for it in my opinion but uh, i i get it you know I, i get what happened to him and i understand why he now knows that or thinks that it doesn't matter if I'm right or if I'm wrong. If I just say something outrageous, I draw a crowd. And, and you know that they do, right? If you predict the end of the world, yeah. people are gonna tune in and listen to what your version of the end of the world is, and he does, so he just keeps throwing that out there. Or making ridiculous claims that, you know, violate all the principles of remote viewing, and in fact, uh, he knows better, but at least he used to. So. He's a smart guy. Both of his sons are physicists, and uh, he speaks Mandarin Chinese fluently. And so he was an he was an interpreter in Vietnam, listening to Chinese to Chinese radio traffic, and interpreting it. That's what he did. <clears throat> and uh, he reads, writes, and speaks it fluently. And so he's a smart guy. And he's a big astronomer. He loves you know he knows everything about all the planets and stuff. Uh, I always enjoyed being around him and I enjoyed having him teach me because I would always ask questions based on, you know, a science or a physics perspective about it. Don't just tell me that I have an ability to detect a waveform expression of something. How would I have an ability to detect that? Where would that come from? And he would offer an answer. In retrospect, it wasn't 100% accurate, but it was was more accurate than what anybody else tried to do. So after you did lecture, you had to write an essay. If that essay was accepted by uh, all of the active remote viewers, then you were permitted to go into the practical exercise. Supposedly, if you didn't articulate in the essay everything you were supposed to get from the lecture then you would be turned around and recycled back through that again which i found perplexing since there was no outline no no program of instruction no manual so it was kind of like are you just gonna make shit up or what i mean i mean is it or is it all locked in all of your heads now they would all love to have you believe that it was all locked in your head but their heads but if you if you talked up five of them you'll get five different versions of every you know, of every answer to a question that you ask. So it wasn't locked in their heads, but everyone has a different interpretation of what they got, what they think they know, how good they thought they were, and all kinds of other things. But Gabrielle would put me through my training there. She put me through the practical exercises. And <clears throat> there there is a learning curve with that. There's a performance curve with that. And you learn a lot of things about About being trained to do this, about performance in doing this, uh, and you learn that there are rules that have to be applied to this. One is that remote viewing is not 100% accurate, never has been, never will be, and anybody that tries to tell you that it is is just a bald-faced liar. (laughs) Rule number two: You never trust the results of a single remote viewer operating independently of other remote viewers. Why? Because more, several of us are always better than one of us. Mm -hmm. Why? Because nobody's up, nobody's perfect. And nobody has a consistent performance. Everybody cycles up and cycles down, cycles up and cycles, cycles down. So we always use a team approach to anything that's there. And the third rule is that remote viewing is not a, a standalone endeavor. It's never, it was never intended for use as a standalone endeavor. There are some 35 to 55 different intelligence collection methodologies now, far more now than there used to be, but still there are all these different intelligence collection methodologies. Remote viewing is just one of them. So in in any pulling together any intelligence puzzle, you know, the picture of this puzzle, all of the pieces come from different intel collection methodologies and an analyst pieces together a total picture. Now, the more we get, the better we get. Uh, The better the actionable intelligence is. When you rely on only one or two or maybe three things, you end up going to war in Iraq looking for weapons of mass destruction that are not there, okay? So that relied on human intelligence, right? Uh, Only a single source and maybe a couple of backups that relied on some limited satellite imagery and that relied on some limited signal intel those three things were put together to sponsor you know and to qualify us to go to war in 2003 in Iraq and so yeah and then we all find out that it's not so and everybody's like well how the hell did that happen well go back to remote viewings third rule you know it can't be a standalone endeavor. One, <laughs> one, you know, one exiled Iraqi does not make a good Intel source. You know, you've got to get a bunch of other stuff and pull it together and create a true picture. Uh, and as we all know, I'm just being, I'm making fun of it because we all know that <clears throat> they didn't, they didn't fail to, to use the Intel correctly. They had an intention to go there regardless of what yeah. the Intel said. So they just, gathered three pieces together because they knew that the most of America, most American people and most of our Congress would have absolutely no idea whether that was a weak position or a strong position. But I did, as did you or anybody else that, you know, was connecting dots. Mm -hmm. So those three rules are there and you must adhere to those. And if you don't, uh, that's when you end up doing stupid things and you overstate your own abilities and you overstate the abilities of the phenomenon. Now the phenomenon is very powerful. And if you if you want to know what that is, uh Dr. Jessica Uch, PhD, UTTS, uh has written uh, extensively on the evaluation of the accuracy remote viewing to the chagrin of the CIA, who actually as I heard the story, uh wanted her to minimize it in her in her evaluation of it because Their spin was in 1995 when Psychic Warrior was published. Uh, Well, they knew Psychic Warrior was coming out in 93 when it was finally published in 95 and then released in 96, very early. I think January of 96. Uh, That In 95, they were already putting out their spin on it. And they were trying to get, their spin was going to be, yes, we did this, We, we only did it for 20 years, and... We found it not to be reliable and we're not going to do it anymore. Well, that's just total crap because it was a, it was a viable intelligence collection methodology. They're still doing it to this very day. And, and I know because a lot of the people who truly were in that unit, who didn't ever say anything or write their version of a book after my book came out, uh, have just disappeared off the, off the map, meaning they have gone deeper undercover to continue doing what they were doing in wherever place the DIA moved that organization, wherever they went with it. I don't know where it could be, but I'm sure that they put it in in a position and they made it very clear because there were at least three brand new candidates right around the time that I left. Brand new candidates coming into the training program or the non-existent training program. Uh, The training program was in the head of whoever sat down to, to teach you in that moment, which was really disconcerting. So I find it humorous now when you have people like uh, some of the guys that were in this unit were there. Oh my God, some of them, Gary, were there for like 15 years. I mean, that's that's three quarters of a career. And they went to this place, dropped anchor, and never left. And yet, Never found the time to write a manual or a POI or a training outline or anything else like that. (laughs) But as soon as in the last six weeks, because I was just, I had a lot of oddities in being there. I was the first combat arms officer to be there. Everybody else was combat support. I was a combat arms officer. I was the first special operations guy to be there. And uh, I only intended to be there like somewhere between two and three years. And I ended up being there uh, closer to three years than, than closer to three, two years. And when I was there, the last six weeks that I was there, Dr. Jack Verona, the chief scientist of the DIA, who was over, overwatch for that organization and Fern Gavin, the GS 15 said, Hey, uh, we, we know your reputation as a trainer. Will you write a, a, a training manual for this unit? And I did. And it was like, it, it was 290 something pages long. And I handed it to them, uh, you know, and they were like, oh goody, you know, we got this. And then of course, guys that had been there for 12 years or 15 years or, you know, nine years, they were all pissed off. And then it was like, you know, some guy that's been here for three years is not gonna write the manual for this thing. We're we're gonna write it. So then now there's a manual that they wrote and they apparently convinced Verona and, and Fern or, Verona moved on and Fern moved on and then they they, you know, transplanted theirs for mine. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But mine was a pretty thorough manual and it became actually my fourth book, which is now it's three hundred ninety nine pages, which is uh, remote viewing the complete user's guide to coordinate remote viewing. And I'm not telling you that to pitch a book. I don't don't care if you buy it. Uh, Don't buy it unless you're interested in learning remote viewing. If you are, then it's a good reference. But if not, don't buy it. It's not, the kind of, it's not something you just curl up in your chair and turn the light on and read mm-hmm. uh, to go to sleep. It, it's, it's difficult. <laughs> so, yeah, there it was. So when it came time for me to leave and to go on to the next special access program, uh, I was recruited into Torn Image to be a strategic deceiver, uh, which was truly the most bizarre thing I was ever asked to do. And I did that. I was asked to develop a counter-narcotics deception. And if you don't know what a strategic deception is, the general definition of a strategic deception is a lie that is sustainable for a minimum of 10 years. So it has to be a lie, a deception that is sustainable for a minimum of 10 years, a minimum. So my mission was to develop a deception uh, that would target the three major cartels in Colombia at the time. And to begin an inter intra cartel war, and that was that's what I worked on. And uh, uh, what I came up with, and I'm going to tell you this as the remember this is a strategic deception. Uh, most of this is true, but there are some pieces of it that won't be, and you can figure it out. If you look at any kind of plant, every plant has naturally occurring plant pathogens on it. There are pathogens common to all the plants out in your garden, and there are pathogens which are unique only to certain plants out in your garden. If you take the coca plant, uh, that coca plant, you can isolate a specific suite of organisms on that coca plant, and you can bioengineer those specific organisms out of the ones that are unique to that plant. And you can bioengineer them to actually break uh, a, a portion of the molecular chain or the molecular construct of the psychoactive ingredient in cocaine uh, in the coca leaf. You can cause that to happen. Then there are methods for microencapsulating that. Uh, microencapsulation can be coded to do a lot of different things. Uh, it can You can spray it. Uh, you can seed it. You can you know drop it out of an airplane or you can do a whole bunch of different things with it. And when it lands into hectares of coca, uh, it may activate and open and releasing these pathogens at the first rain or when temperature drops to a certain level or rises to a certain level, depending upon what you're trying to create as an environment of infestation for this pathogen. Uh, Pathogen can be engineered to live within the root ball, which means it's self-inoculating Every time you harvest it, as a new plant grows up, the pathogen continues to Mm -hmm. break the molecular chain of the psychoactive ingredient in that plant. And so the intent was to build, uh, was to build this micro-encapsulate it. uh, And to one aspect was to, we knew the the tail numbers and the markings of the various cartel aircraft. Uh, So we knew Cali, Medellin, you know, we knew the different ones. And the idea was to, take Cali aircraft and, and identical aircraft, paint them to look exactly the same, and then spray spray the fields that were being used for the Medellin cartel and vice versa, and then have another one spray the other one. And then that of course that information would get out. And you wouldn't want to spray the actual ingredient, the pathogen into all of them. Mm-hmm. You want to spray it into one of them so that when one figures out that now their pro- their product, even though it will test positive for the amount of coca that is in it, right? It is actually inert. So you would get a bigger buzz out of table salt than, or, or baking soda than you would the, the finished product. And then the idea was to lace uh, this washed, chemically washed uh, product into the distribution chains so that by the time it got handed off and was sold on the streets of Detroit, you would have a product that was an inert product, even though it tested perfectly blue mm-hmm. as showing it had the presence of coca in it. So you get the idea here, right? Yeah. You're really screwing with their money. <laughs> Genius. With, yeah, I thought so. So it, uh, it's how my mind works. So it ends up being this thing that it is going to start an inter, intra-cartel war. You've got Medellin pissed off at Cali, Cali pissed off at somebody else. You've got suppliers and distributors on the streets uh, of America that have got an inert product that now start a war back up the chain. And so, yeah, the 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 thing was canceled uh, almost as quickly as it got put put into action because I was told a lot of different reasons, and then I was also told to just shut up. And I I kind of think that it was probably I mean we're talking now about you know when Pablo Escobar was kind of still at his at his prime and and strength and other things and I think if you believe you know Gary Webb and if you you know you know who Gary Webb is mm-hmm. the okay San Jose Mercury News if you yeah. believe Gary Webb and others uh that worked in those areas uh about what was going on at that time uh and the cross-contamination of weapons and money and guns for different purposes from different places, as well as you know Barry Seal importing coke into you know into Mena, Arkansas, mm-hmm. and getting bailed out by the governor later our president in Arkansas, which that all was true, that all happened. Uh, yeah, uh, there was a reason that it got canceled, and the reason it got canceled is I think that it was probably going to be too effective and that it was probably going to cause too much mayhem. And, you know, there's probably one piece of me that will say that it's very possibly could have affected people's pocketbooks that didn't want to have their pocketbooks affected by it.
0: Hmm. Did they, did our government or the CIA fund a lot of their
1: black ops through drugs? I don't know if they did a lot of it, uh, but I know that when it came to compartmented uh, special projects that it's just like in that movie. And that movie is not a big exaggeration about how that all works. I mean, a guy comes in, befriends Barry Seals, and says, this is what we want you to do. Now, if you're looking at that from the way that movie was portrayed, um, it, it was that the CIA was not... They were witting of the fact that he was transporting cocaine mm-hmm. while doing work for them and getting and you know and getting paid by drug lords. But they certainly didn't blow the whistle on it or stop it or do anything like that. And in fact, you know, uh, in an effort to try to hide the other program that they were working on, which was the the Contra, uh, trying to spin up the Contras and train the Contras and bring them to the United States and train them because. It was difficult to train them in in Honduras and other places. I mean, that was one of the things that really failed. When the Rangers, we used to spend a lot of time in uh, in a place called Bucaron, um, which was kind of up in the north, in the northeastern portion of Honduras, right on the Nicaraguan River. There was a the bay there. Uh, we did a lot of work in there and a lot of things in there and. Uh, uh, you know, that was the main crossing point for Contras. Contras going across the faint Sandinistas and pick up another patrol, bring it back in again. SF would pick it up, third of the seventh, pick it up, train it, refit it, get it going again, try to, you know, backfill it with new, new bodies if they could get them, uh, which oftentimes they, you know, I, I just, I got called out of the jungle one time and I had to bring a platoon out and get into a, into a CH-47 and we flew from a, a jungle LZ and flew into Mocaron to land because there was a father that had shown up that was threatening the lives of a bunch of different people because his son had been taken uh, from in Nicaragua and brought into uh, Mocaron to be trained as a Contra and he came to collect him. And he was drunk and wielding a machete and you know, so we had to come in and intervene in in that case. And he ended up uh, ended up being very badly, badly hurt as a result of you know, our requiring to intervene in that. But yeah, things like that happened <clears throat> a lot. So all of that stuff, did I, again, so to answer the question, did the CIA orchestrate that? Uh, no, because, but they knew that it was happening and they didn't do anything to stop it either. Why? Because as long as Barry Seals was doing what else, the other things that they wanted him to do, and they really didn't give it a damn about what he was doing to earn money or where he was taking it.
0: It's now I don't
1: know the deal with, uh, you know, with, uh, what Gary Webb stumbled upon. Now if you believe that movie killed the messenger, which I have no reason just knowing based on my experience, I have no reason to doubt it or to think it sensational or conspiratorial or anything else. I, I think that those things probably happened. It, it probably happened to, to Gary Webb in that way. And wow. of course, he never recovered from it. He was never a journalist again. And eventually, uh, they claim that he committed suicide, but there were two bullet holes in his head. <laughs> you know, that would be the first one I've seen where a guy shot himself once in the head and then shot himself a second time in the head just to finish it off. But I, that
0: would be tough to do. You would think. Wow. Yeah that's insane was george bush i mean he was head of the cia wasn't he during yeah. well yeah. some of this was going on did he do you think he knew about um the that's remote a, viewing program and stuff
1: <laughs> here's my take on that and uh some people disagree with this but i can tell you that uh I would be willing to bet that it's at least 95%, if not higher, completely accurate. <clears throat> in this world of compartmented intelligence and compartmented special projects, special access projects, the people that are in command of those things, like, I don't care if it's commander of DIA or it's the director of the Central Intelligence Agency or whatever you want to call it, um, <clears throat> they don't know everything that everybody's working on they get they get briefings, but in that world, there is no law, there is no rule <laughs> that says that uh, And when you give a briefing, it will be the complete and accurate briefing about what you're doing. In fact, in that world, you are trained, encouraged, brought up, educated uh, with the knowledge that if you're in a secret compartment of information, I mean, if you're in a, a special access program, compartmentalized. Uh, you have no obligation to anybody other than the project. And so if somebody asks you for a briefing, here's what I know exactly will happen, is they will give the briefing, uh, they will give the person that has asked for the briefing exactly whatever they feel like giving that person and nothing more. And that person has no recourse. They, What are they going to do? I don't think you're telling me the whole truth. Yeah, well... I am. No, I don't think you are. Well, I, I am, you know, and that's, that's unfortunately how it goes. Now, in do those directors uh, of those various agencies want to know everything that's going on? Hell no. (laughs) They want plausible deniability. I mean, this is like kind of career ending stuff, some of this stuff. So there are, they know that there are things that are going on within the organization that they just don't want to know the particulars about and, but they will stand up and defend that program and or the people in that program, uh, you know, forever, because they will just not expose it. And you can use the, like the Diane Feinstein, you know, report on the enhanced interrogation techniques, right? She gets, they go ahead and tell Feinstein, uh, you know, as the head of the Senate select committee for, counterintelligence or intelligence rather and they tell her go ahead and you know investigate these enhance the EIT go ahead and investigate it assuming that nobody's ever going to get dig deep enough to really find out the stuff that they can find out but some young man did I don't remember his name but he did and he developed some enormous like 750 page report which Diane Feinstein was really struggling with and I mean, they went to President Obama and said, you know, based on this, we think the CIA was lying. Do you want to do it? And that was, according to what I heard, Hillary Clinton, it was Hillary Clinton and it was uh, whoever the director of state was uh, and whomever else, whoever else was in that, in that room, chief of staff, Hillary Clinton, and, and then the secretary of defense, I think was the other. And they said, we, we think you should appoint a special counsel. And Obama said, nah, nah I'm not gonna do that. Why? Because he knows that he knows that it's going to disrupt the organization and the special counsel either may or may not unravel some things that they don't want unraveled. And even if they do, it's not gonna it's not gonna do anything because the CIA is just going to turn around and go, No, you know, we're not gonna tell you that. We're not giving you access to that. And if they do that, there is nothing in, there's nothing that's available that says that somebody can make that happen. A special counsel can't go to the Justice Department and say, the CIA is being bad. They're not letting us have access to all their special access programs. No, those guys live under a completely different world. And I'm not sure that we want them not to live under that world. Because if they don't live under that world and anybody like Diane Feinstein or some little investigator that she employs has access to those things and pulls that stuff up, it now becomes public knowledge to the rest of the world. And we now have no secrets and the rest of the world has those kinds of secrets. And they are. That's the whole reason for the agency to be there is because it is truly this spy versus spy versus spy that's ongoing with trying to figure out what the real or perceived enemies of our nation are actually involved in and what they're doing and even what our allies are doing and our allies are doing the same thing back to us so nobody's going to pull back the curtain on everything that they're doing and therefore the agency will never pull back the curtain on what it's doing because its charter is to protect the institution of America that's their charter even though we may disagree with how they do it or some of the things that they're doing. I get that. I do. I, I get it. Um, we may disagree with many of those things, but I would not be willing to say that, you know, utter and total transparency is the way to go because the rest of the world's not going to play that way, which means that you were really dropping our pants and opening our kimono, you know, going here, here's everything we got, you know, so what do you think? (laughs) Because it would just be, it could be bad. And I know that's a, scary thing to deal with and and sometimes it goes awry you know like enhanced interrogation techniques or some of the other stuff like going after gary webb and that kind of crap but i believe me i've been on the brunt of that i've been on that you know i've been on the the pointy end of that particular spear so right. i get it but i also know that i that that i knew that was going to happen to me in doing what i did
0: I want to ask you a question, you don't have to answer it if you don't want to, it's just not necessarily relevant to what we've been talking about, but it does include the same cast of characters that we've been in 9 11. Yeah, you know, it bothers me because I think at the very least they mm-hmm. knew that it was going to happen before it happened.
1: Oh, they there were uh, there were all kinds of uh analysts and and people who are responsible for that who were who were pushing that information forward to the people who should have reacted to it so and that was coming out of NSA probably out of DIA and CIA and it was being pushed forward and there were people just who should have taken action on it <clears throat> who just ignored it and it that becomes kind of a a reflection of the administration. because if it's like oh, everything is fine, let's just not worry about that. I don't, I don't want to, you know, start putting that out there that we think that, you know, Obama and Al Qaeda are going to, or are going to actually come here and, you know, and, and and do what you're saying that they could do, which is uh, wrong, because it is this Pollyannish perspective of. I don't want to shift the focus off my administration and the goals of my administration by turning around and being this alarmist by saying that <clears throat> what Intel is coming up with says that attack is imminent. And attack is imminent, even though they didn't couldn't say they're going to hijack aircraft and fly them into buildings. They knew that an Al Qaeda attack was imminent. They they had intercepted enough traffic and had a, enough human intelligence. Uh, references to be able to paint a fairly actu- accurate picture, and that should have been used to dig deeper. and of course, I don't want to say that I'm second guessing uh, analysts in that particular case because, from what I know of the analysts, they were they had it. I mean, they didn't have the exact methodology, but had had there been sharing of intel because the FBI knew that they had bad guys at flight schools. But the FBI wouldn't sit down and share that with the CIA any more than the CIA would sit down and share what they had with FBI and NSA. And this has always been a huge problem within the intel or any, you know, the collective entity of our government is that you have these people trying to hoard information uh, for whatever reason, uh, because I don't know, it's dollars maybe you know, if they're the ones that come up with the big win, the big prediction and the win, then they get more money than the other guys. I, I mean, that's actually not too far from the truth in a lot of ways. Plus, then there's just this professional pride of it, this is mine. You know, we got it and we're not going to share it with you guys. I mean, you see that in law enforcement all the time, but you see it also in intel. So there were guys in the FBI that absolutely knew that these guys were suspect. They, and that they were taking flying lessons and they did nothing about it. And then you also had intel analysts going, we know that Al-Qaeda is planning a huge attack. Now, if there was some <clears throat> some way in which, or some mandate where these intel agencies got together and force fed intel to each other to share it, uh, but they all have their piece of the turf staked out. And, they all think that, you know, they're responsible for this and they're not going to share it with anybody else, which is, in retrospect, really stupid. You know, it just is, isn't it? Because that's really what happened is you had all these siloed groups who knew these things and in no one place that was a clearinghouse to, to submit it. And then you had nobody in the administration who was willing to react to it. So it was at all that time the Clinton administration.
0: Departmental politics, basically.
1: <clears throat> oh, yeah. And it's 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 back again. <laughs> you know, it it uh as much of a, a nut as as George Bush Jr. was, and and uh, you know, at least what he was doing was just slamming his fist on a table and going, y'all are gonna start talking, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. <laughs> and and he forced that to happen and i'm not sure how effectively how effective it was but it was certainly the objective at that time that this all happened because you guys weren't talking and this this is going to stop you're going to you're going to start talking and sharing so it always goes on for as long as the administration is willing to keep a burner under everybody's ass to make it happen and as soon as administration comes in and goes gets focused on other things and those things begin, everybody goes back into their their own little turf because those directors change, right? Deputy mm-hmm. directors change, you know, occasionally heads of special access programs change. And so the institutional knowledge base is fairly short-lived in a lot of ways. I see you have a UFO on the back of your, on your wall there. Mm-hmm. So this is a nice segue into another thing that I talk about to a lot of people because you'll see these guys that come up and and go well you know i'm in charge i i got this for the ufo community now they'll be like i i am who i, I i'm going to shake this up and break this loose so they go in and talk to a few people and of course those people don't ever produce anything that these guys claim that they're they're going to produce and then they start coming up with crap like oh it's a it's a leaked memo it's not a leaked memo you <laughs> jackass you know <laughs> the fucking pentagon produces memorandum for record about 5 million a day so it's not a it's not a leaked memorandum in fact they probably sent it to you because it's not classified so they just sent it to you as it's a memorandum for record it's in the military it's called a cover your ass document so <laughs> you go talk to some guy that guy goes met with these two you know the you know a civilian md and a you know former air force officer they wanted to talk to me about these things. Uh, here's what I said to them, you know. So he wants to make it very clear that he didn't make any promises, but he accepted your meeting. Here's what you talked about, and he said, "I'll, I'll try to get. All right, I'll get this to the right person." Well, the right person it, it will never go to because here's my point with that. It's like even when the president says. I'm gonna, I'm, as soon as I get into office, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask the questions about this. I'm gonna expose this because I think everybody should know. Well, get real, people. I mean, the people that run that special access program, they consider administrations transients in the White House. And people don't get that. People think that the president's got all this power that he can go in and say, hey, I wanna know this. And when you do that to these keepers of these you know, decade long special access programs, they're like, yeah, sure. You bet, Mr. President. Yeah. You wanna know that? Yeah, we know you wanna know that, uh-huh. So here's the briefing we give every president and you know, and they go through it again and people are like, damn it, damn it. And it's like, you gotta get this. These guys are not gonna tell some president. They don't, couldn't care less about the new president. These guys have been keeping this for, you know, what, 70 years? I mean, this is stuff they've been handling for 70 years and they picked their own successors. You know, these are these are not appointed positions or promoted positions. Mm -hmm. And even the Air Force guys or anybody else that's around it, they're not the real keepers of the treasure. The real keepers of the treasure are SES guys and, you know, GS guys that have grown up in that and they are protecting that. And you will never, ever, ever know the truth about whatever it is you're trying to get at unless somewhere along the line they decide that there's a reason for you to know it and the fact that you just want to know it is not a reason for you to know it from their perspective mm-hmm. so they just get a grin on their face as you know people stand up and go well I'm gonna really shake this up now I'm gonna go have a meeting in the Pentagon okay yeah meeting in the Pentagon yeah it's about so it's probably about seventy-five of those in my tenure that I've had, but yeah, go have a meeting in a Pentagon. You know? Yep, yeah, I've been, I've had five presidents and yep, yeah, give them all the same briefing. <laughs> yep. So. they they don't <laughs> have to stall anybody, for, for you
0: know? like we just gotta stall them for
1: eight years <laughs> till the next guy comes. Truly. Right? I mean that's how they look at this. And it's sad, but it, it's true. It is the way that is. And so, you know, but then these guys always go the extra mile to say something stupid. Like, you know, they develop some meditation thing that they now call this mysterious protocol. Oh, the CE5? CE5. Have you seen it? Yeah, I've seen it. So the CE5 protocol, which is a meditation thing. So it's a bunch of people getting in, you know, sitting in a circle in lawn chairs out in the desert, you know, going through a, a meditation. And of course, I love the tagline. Contact has been made, you know. Like, really, uh, okay. Contact has been made, but then the guy that comes up with that thing stands in there on film to the American people and says, "The people of the world," and says, "Well, you know, after we initiated this protocol and we've been having such great success with it that the you know the the head of Army Intelligence scooped me up off of the street in Washington D.C. and took me to a took me to a hotel." And the CIA was at the hotel, it was all very threatening, all of it threatening. And, and there were some Air Force officers there too. And they said, how dare you, you know, how dare you initiate contact with aliens utilizing your CE5 protocol, you know, how dare you? And it's like, are you freaking kidding me? Do you really think that they would do something like that? First of all, you're telling me the head of army intelligence, that's a three-star general. So. so who was it? And I mean, did he have some MPs back that, you know, threatened you? I mean, you're a big weightlifter. So I mean, what, some old 65-year-old three-star general, you know, forced you into the back of a sedan and threatened you on a way to some unnamed hotel. Now, look, if the guy turned around and said, this general with these guys grabbed me and took me to this hotel, and that when I got into that hotel, these agents by these names identified themselves to me. And, you know, these Air Force officers identified themselves to me. I I might give it some credence, but the story as told is just absolute crap. Just for the record, Stephen Greer will not do my podcast. uh,
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So (laughs) I've asked him and he he will not do it. So I I think that that by itself kind of
1: speaks a little bit to me, you know, just, you know, it's i just can't stand that if you're gonna if you want to stand there and say that these things but here's what happens you know this guy steps in and he's an md so of course the ufo community is are they're thinking he's an md because they've never had an md representing them before it's always been some ex somebody former air force former something else Uh, or whatever but now you've got an md representing so he made big promises and of course those promises are never fulfilled because they won't be Uh, and then it just becomes this how do i reach further and reach further and reach further and become as we were just talking about you know dr doom how do you just Mm -hmm. start making more outrageous statements and predictions and i don't understand why people don't call him on it i really don't but i guess if you are in that community that's It's more important to you to believe that somebody's maybe going to part the curtain on that and and, you know, and you get what you're after, but it's not going to happen. It's I I don't know when it's going to happen, but it's not going to happen. And even with this protocol um, until you tell me that an alien craft comes down and lands in the middle of your meditation circle and something steps out, you know, and says, Hey, you know, thanks for calling us down. We wondered when somebody was going to do that kind of thing, which it's not going to happen. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I wish it would, but I, it's not. So, but am I, do I, as a remote viewer, do I believe in other other alien races and worlds and civilizations and, and these crap? Absolutely. I do. I mean, it was one of the things we used to do in the unit. They did open search outward to off planet work. They did, uh, they had historical files on alien civilizations that they would run viewers after those, you know, repeatedly over the years and then develop thick files of information that were collected there. Um, I don't know if any of that survived when that unit was closed down. I would, it, it probably should have, but it would also have been something that would could have easily been shredded you know, and, and thrown away. But most of us who did those kept copies of what we did uh, and or the feedback that we were given about those particular uh, sessions. So yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm tuned up and into all of that, that it's there. I'm just not, I'm not willing to uh, listen to people tell me that they got, you know, snagged up off the streets by generals and hauled to hotels, Mm -hmm. you know, threatened.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I, 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 am just not, I'm not a fan of him. I, I do believe that consciousness and meditation, um, does connect to unexplained phenomena. Um, whether it's interdimensional or extraterrestrial, i I don't know what it is. Um, but far as he goes, he he seems to only will talk to people on his own terms so because his his thing to me was he goes, "Oh, your audience isn't big enough." And I'm like, <laughs> I've had more popular guests than you on my show you know i mean i've had like everybody from like ancient aliens and kathleen
1: Martin and michael cremo and whatever clearly you have to see a mufon conference you know it's not like it's not like they're packing it to the walls and those things i mean they get thinner and thinner every year and uh you know i'm, I'm sure he probably plus the numbers up with his attitude about stuff and telling people he was, he was in charge now and he was going to solve this.
2: Mm-hmm. But,
1: uh, yeah, I'm just really disgusted by, by it. And, you know, I would tell him to his face, if he said that to me, I, I would just be like, you're a liar. <laughs> you're just a liar because you didn't, you didn't get snatched up off the street. Nobody snatched you up off the street. The government's not worried about your meditation protocol. <laughs> not, I assure you, they're not worried. I, you know, let me say it again. The government's not worried about your meditation protocol. <laughs> the claim that you know they brought you in there because of that, that's just you're just trying to sell more of them. And I think he charges like a thousand bucks for that.
0: So yeah, I don't know that. how much he charges to do it. I did download the app just to see what it was like. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Somebody sent me the whole protocol after they heard me talk about this. He he didn't
0: even protocol. create the protocol.
1: Oh hell no. He he I
0: have like one have a guy Preston Dennett he's on my show like once a month. And and he's one of the actually earlier people that started it.
1: Yeah, I I mean I have no doubt. It's I mean if you look at it it's it's just a yogic relaxation breath meditation mm-hmm. kind of guided you know, guided imagery kind of thing, but but it's got some really funny things in there, you know, be prepared for dreams. You know, if, if nothing happens the night while you're out in the desert in the lawn chair, you know, if, if you have strange dreams over the next two days, those count.
0: It's <laughs> like,
1: okay, <laughs> that's a pretty wide shot group, you know, on that thing. So if it happens, anything happens, you know, two days after it's supposed to happen, it, it counts. <laughs> Which, okay, you know, I'm making fun of him, but it's just to me as trying to look at things from a scientific perspective and then also from an intel perspective and just being, trying to be honest about things. Do you, do you
0: think somebody like him is just a disinforma- dif- disinformant...
1: Disinformation guy? Yeah. No, I, I think that he's an ego-driven character that, You know that stepped out of medicine to do this and now what he's driven to do is earn an income doing it he's not i don't even know if his board certification is current now i mean i employ three uh you know three emergency physicians a nurse practitioner and you know a bunch of medics in in my company but i don't i don't know if he's if his board certification is current i don't even know if he could get a shift in an er now so Mm i think he was an emergency physician so if he's not doing that then now which people would be surprised to see what how much money those guys actually don't make but i know yeah it's 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 that good (laughs) uh it's it's just clear to me that where he is now is he'll say whatever he needs to say to get people to you know to 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 buy the next thing or to stick with it because Mm -hmm. It's just like any of these other people. There's a lot, so many people now that are just lining up and are willing to say anything, however outrageous, because for some odd reason, there's a, you know, if you go by the evaluation of where people believe that, you know, people, the, the pe, where people begin to be discerning or, or to about information that they're told. I mean, there is a 50% cut line in the population, so it says. I don't know if that's actually accurate, but there are certain studies that say that. So that's 50% of the population. If you make an outlandish claim, it's 50% of the people, or a significant portion of that 50% are going to stand up and and become followers of it, no matter what you say. And in fact, the more outrageous it is, uh, you'll probably get more of that 50%. Hmm. so these guys understand that. And they were uh, will say that, and I see it all the time, and I'm sure you do as well. Yeah. I've just gotten to the point after <clears throat> being, you know, have, having come out of the, out of the military in 9'5 and then being in this kind of realm, being like the first guy teaching it on the scale that I was teaching it, uh, because I've trained over 25,000 remote viewers in 25 years. Um, well, I stopped in 2004. I stopped actively teaching in 2004 just because my country was at war, and so I went, you know, I went to work in building this, you know, this new business and mm-hmm. working with physicians and building this new business, which was training tactical combat casualty care, and and then we became the largest trainer of that uh, in working with my partners at that time. And uh, I was really, again, I felt like it was like being back almost in the military again. We were training soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, coasties, and, uh, and in federal and state, local law enforcement, in trauma medicine. Because for the first time in the history of U.S. warfare, um, in this last 20 years, we actually gave warfighters uh, an individual first aid kit that, had actual medical devices in that first aid kit. And then they had to be trained how to use those devices. And they were given a, a thing called the March algorithm that they had to learn how to do that. And you had, you had medical providers who were in the field as either medics or physicians or something else. And they had to be taught at another level about how to do this stuff because, um, <clears throat> you know, an MD that goes into the military, in, in some cases they were even deploying dentists uh, and using them, you know, as assistance in trauma. And you had guys that have never in their life seen how to do a surgical airway or what to do with a traumatic amputation on the battlefield, or, you know, how to stop a high pressure, high volume bleed, or what, you know, how tension pneumothoraxes develop and, you know, how you decompress those and all, all these different things that became part of, that whole medical world, a whole new brand uh, brand new kind of medicine called operational medicine or tactical combat casualty care. But the overarching umbrella of it was operational medicine. And so the training had to be there for those. But it was one of the reasons that 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 training saved so many lives is because now you had guys, I mean, I, was, <laughs> I spent six years in the Rangers. I, I didn't have a tourniquet. <laughs> <laughs> I never had a tourniquet. I had a first aid kit. We all did. You know what it was? It was the same, it was the same old bandage, the pressure bandage that they issued in World War I. <laughs> it's the same thing. Everybody was carrying that same stupid cravat. You'd open it up and it was a cravat, had a safety pin in it. That That's what they issued you. That's all you had. So now they figured out, oh no, you've got to have pressure bandages and you have to have tourniquets and guys need chest seals and You know, then it goes into interosseous devices, and medics are carrying pelvic stabilization devices, and they were using extremity extremity I.O. devices, which was not new technology. I.O. was interosseous infusions. Uh, It's like, you have to think of it as, are you familiar with it? No. It is, you think of the bone as a rigid vein. So in trauma medicine, what happens is guys get traumatic amputations or, you know, gunshots to extremities and things like that, and they get they get shocky or they get low pressure because they bleed considerably. And what'll happen is um, you can't get an IV started. If you're trying to infuse whole blood or some other kind of medication, you can't get one because the veins collapse.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <clears throat> and so interosseous was actually developed by an army surgeon. Um, I think in, it was in the Philippines on Corregidor uh, in World War II, mm-hmm. And he used this large gauge stainless steel catheter, which he pounded into the tibia. And when you pound it in the tibia, uh, you're now access the marrow. And it's, uh, there's red marrow and yellow marrow. And uh, the, I, I've forgotten, which, the tibia and the uh, humerus are red marrow and the sternum is yellow marrow. And the sternum, actually, with yellow marrow, it uptakes fluids better, faster, and gets them to the heart and the brain faster. But it, it's sometimes an easier target in these extremities, like the humerus bone or the mm. tibia. And so they now there are devices that are made that you know that just drill. They have drill. They have little guns and drill them in. There are hand turns that you can turn them and screw them in, in those particular places. Hook them up to an IV bag, and uh, and it. It infuses just like it was through a vein. Wow, that's pretty, pretty cool. It is, but some some doctor came up with that in the Philippines in the Corregidor, because they couldn't they couldn't get veins, so he came up with that idea, and now it has become part of it's just part of battlefield treatment. Every oh. everybody carries that, so every you know every trauma medic, uh, you know whether they're Army, Navy, Air Force, where corpsmen corpsmen that are supplying supporting Marines whatever the case is they've all got them they've either got easy IOs or fast ones or whatever the case may be and they know how to, they're they're being trained to use them and so they're really proficient it's a it's an amazing invention it is
0: it yeah. is and what you're doing is great too because you're saving lives on the battlefield you know creating these technologies <coughs> or at least yeah,
1: not me because i I'm not an instructor because I'm not mm-hmm. a provider but i got to build a program <laughs> and 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 uh the guys i trained who are providers are the ones that now train to the level that i expect them to train to and they've you know they've taken what i taught them and gone way beyond it i mean most of my trainers have now been with me like my goodness 16 17 years wow. some of them yeah that's a long time to be doing that and and i love it so talking about remote viewing and teaching remote viewing now Mm -hmm. is is done as a it's done as a because we want to do it (laughs) i'm not you know that's not how i make my living yeah Uh, but i'm certainly happy to to teach it and to talk about it and do those kinds of things and i'm i'm really I, i wish we could talk again i'm and uh Pick this up and carry on.
0: Absolutely. Uh, yeah, we could definitely do a know, part two. Kind of short on time I love now. doing this.
1: <laughs> yeah, I can tell you're a good interviewer, so you Thank ask the question and let the you let the you know interviewee answer it and that's good. It's all so about yeah.
0: the story, I love listening to it. I learned something new from every interview. Of course. <laughs> like that awesome. Well,
1: so before we wrap it up, where can my listeners find you? Uh Probably the best place is to go to www.rv-forum.club. Uh, that's the remote viewing forum website. And it tells you everything about what I'm doing now because on, I'm on Clubhouse, uh, which is that new, uh, new app. social media app. Right. <clears throat> and it, it used to be difficult to get on it. And, and in fact, uh, you had to, it was a long waiting we list. You had to be invited. You had to be invited, yeah, and uh, you still have to be invited. Only now, um, it it doesn't take long to get you know, on there, and I'm you can you can you can just apply and kind of almost get approved quickly, like a few days. Mm-hmm. Or you can go to the Remote dot Club, and if you're serious that you want to come to the forum and just sit and listen, I talk every Friday for twelve hours. So it's 12 hours overnight, all night. And we talk about every subject, including remote viewing and training for it and all those different kinds of things and answer all of the the science questions, the, you know, the physics questions, the, you name it. And, um, and it's, it's just a no BS. There's no conspiracy. There's no, we don't allow any of that. You know, any of that we will just, we only tell the truth about, what we're talking about there. And we won't let anybody come in and, you know, try to pull the wool over people's eyes or make ridiculous comments or things like that. It's, I love the app for that because if people come in and do that and the moderators that work with you on it, they, uh-huh. all they have to do is like touch the, you know, the icon for the person and it like instantly mutes their mic.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> they can actually throw them back in the audience or if they were a real jerk, they can actually throw them out of the club. And then ban them on the way out, which means they can never come back. That's so great. it is good, isn't it? So yeah. people under people typically come in and mind their p's and q's, and they come in there and, and they'll ask a question, and you, you know you're not allowed to sell yourself or sell somebody else or sell your books or doing it because we don't. So if we're just there talking about remote viewing or UFOs or anything else, I mean the the conversation in twelve hours can only imagine where it goes, right? It goes all over the place. And as long as the audience is digging it and, you know, we can tell by how the numbers in the audience are stacking up. So if it's, you know, if it's 200 people, then we know it's good. If it dwindles down to 69, we know we better get off that subject and (laughs) something else because people float in and out kind of deal. But, uh, yeah. So clubhouse, uh, the, the, the club is the, the remote viewing forum and uh just get on clubhouse look for me david morehouse and uh and then join that club and then we'll be there starting tomorrow night at 7 p.m eastern time and it goes uh 7 p.m to 7 a.m wow <laughs> long night <laughs> fun i really enjoy it i i really get a lot of energy as i'm sure you do from your guests and from yeah the, people i mean i just i may start off kind of tired but it, mm-hmm. it usually you know a couple hours into it and i'm like amped up and ready to continue on so yeah i really enjoy it and i again i've really enjoyed being here with you
0: and, i enjoyed uh, it too this is great and i know like i was talking to somebody today and i said you know sometimes they like, got my days off from work i'll do like six interviews in a day and he's like how can you do that that's too many and i'm like <laughs> not really no i you know, and it also just makes me a better interviewer, it makes me more enduring, it makes me pay better attention. You know? What do you do, if you don't mind my asking? Oh, I'm a. Um, you ever go to Sam's Club and the people that give out the samples, the free food? Yeah. Yeah, like I'm the supervisor of that department. Well, that's crazy. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Yeah, you're a good guy to know.
0: Yeah, he, I, get, I got I get the
1: food hookup. <laughs> exactly. You know, like what, what cool is going to be going out today? You know, I wonder when they have the lobster samples and the shrimp samples and, you know, not the other things. But that's, now, that's, let,
0: that's lately weird. it's been hot dogs. <laughs> hot
1: dogs. So did you go to culinary school or something like that? To, no, you know, no, that?
0: this was a, uh, I had moved to Alabama and I couldn't find a job. So, I got a job, you know, giving out the samples part time. And then I started making the orange juice and then COVID hit and we stopped doing the sampling and everybody quit. My bosses quit. All the leads quit and everything. (laughs) So I was the only person enough to take over. And then I took over and COVID ended and (laughs) here I am. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Well, good for you. That's awesome. That is a, that's an amazing story. Yeah. You know? I, sometimes I got to do is hang in there and endure and things work. That, that, that's the big lesson, isn't it? For people mm-hmm. is that, that perseverance, you know, aspect of and the other thing is, you know, how people are just trying to figure out what their purpose and their calling is in this life. And, and, uh, how are going to live your life honoring that purpose and that calling? Because if you'll do that and clearly this is one of you, this is a, you know, the other thing is, is, Paying bills, but this is a purpose and a yeah. calling. I mean, you're you're empowering humanity, and you're giving them wisdom and knowledge for them to you know pick and choose how they choose to absorb it. But that's the only way that we're going to kind of change the glo- the global societal evolution. You know, we just came out of twenty years of war, so we had an unraveling phase. We've had a twenty-year-long destructive phase.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If you follow Strauss and Howe's concept, right from beginning. Uh, of, recorded, of recorded time and, uh, and so we don't know how much longer this destructive phase is going to last and then we're supposed to go into a rebuilding and then a sustaining phase and we don't know how long those will last either before we cycle back down into unraveling and, and destructive. But empowering people with knowledge so long as people are able to take it and keep it into perspective and not spin themselves up into orbit and to be angry and pissed off and, yeah. you know, about things because that just becomes wasted time and wasted life yep. because you're not going to change any of that stuff, right? Yeah. And, yeah. Like uh, the, whole,
0: the whole purpose of my podcast really is to hopefully motivate my, my listeners to ask questions. You know, because yeah. when they're asking the question and then finding the answers for themselves, it's way more meaningful than somebody telling them. You know. Yeah,
1: I agree. Well, I'm. Uh, yeah, I'm happy to. I mean, you tell me if you want me back. Uh, if not. Oh,
0: absolutely! I'd love to have you happy back. Happy to
1: come back. I like the format, and uh, I like your. Uh, I looked at your show and presentation, and it's good, and you're a good interviewer. Thank you.
0: Thank you very Enjoy much. It all. Awesome. Yeah. I'll definitely have you back and hang on one second. Oh, and I'm going to put the link to your website and the notes to this episode so my listeners can find you.
1: Yeah. If they go there and just, anyway, that's all. You just, if they go to that RVforum.club, they can find my other websites there and the ones that they might want to look at. Yeah. Just go to where to know more. <laughs>
0: awesome. Hang on one second, I'm just gonna play my outro.